welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. everyone and welcome to How I Got Here, Mozio and FocusWire's podcast that delves into the innovators in travel and transportation. Today we're joined by Brad Bow, one of the two founders of Lime. Lime was founded in January 2017 by Brad and Toby Sun and is primarily known for popularizing the uh, dockless scooters you see around every city these days. Uh, But they're also uh, known for operating electric bikes, normal pedal bikes, and even car sharing systems. So thank you for joining us today, Brad. Thank you for having me here, and I'm very glad. The uh, you know, thanks again for you guys to create this awesome venue for us to you know really discuss the industries and also innovations everyone has. Of course, it's it's been an absolute pleasure so far. So we, as you know, we like to start every one of these podcasts off the same way, which is uh, for us to ask you how you got here. Yeah. Love the question. I think I heard a lot of a uh, big fan of the series. I, you know, heard great stories out of it as well. So more than happy to share mine. Uh, I, I'd like to begin with that the uh, the creation or the genesis of Lime probably is a little bit different from many other startups, right? We didn't got hit by the lightning. We didn't like say, hey, here's a brilliant idea. Let's just create it tomorrow. Uh, but I do I do think the you know the Lime creation was a result of like combination of you know passion, which is about travels and and bikes itself, right? The, uh, that's one thing. Frustration with the, the incumbents or the existing solutions and very deep research and also entrepreneurship. That's actually at the end of it. So the, the very, we, we started Lime in 2017, but we actually started work way before that. And before we, uh, you know, Toby and I started Lime, we were uh, at a venture fund that I co-founded in back in 2017, uh, 2013, and we're doing a bunch of researches and and uh, doing you know venture investments across the globe. And one sector that always we are passionate about is travel and the transportation. It just given the nature that uh, you know a that we just love it, right? We travel a lot, and I'm a pretty avid uh, global traveler as well. And b that uh, I'm a I'm a cyclist and you, you know, it's hard to tell with the office or not, but I just love it. We grew up in China, uh, moving in the U.S. in, in our adulthood. Uh, back then, the um, bike was the way we traveled. You know, ever since elementary school, that I think it's kind of like unsinkable in some other countries. But back in the elementary schools, I bike all my, by myself to school. And in the university, I bike roughly about 20 miles Per, per trip, right, one way to, to my college. Uh, and that's why my main way of transportation. So I think the diversity of the backgrounds that give everyone a little bit different kind of a perspective on the world that, you know, some of that is, for example, in the U.S., that uh, bikes are more seen as a sports than transportation. Well, as to me, Bike is the main way of transporting, uh, you know, myself and, and hang out with friends. But then Europe is kind of in the middle. Right? It's well accepted as a way of transportation. But meanwhile, it's a really good sport as well. So when I came to the U.S., I converted my biking habit into more sports, but always questioned that, you know, why 
this is not widely widely adopted. So when we were doing the research in on you know shared mobility, Uber, everything else, right? The uh, the market was was booming at the time. If you think about back in the 2015 2016 uh, era, but also meanwhile that we still found it's clumsy and also you know, stuck in the traffic and all, all that when we in an urban setting. Uh, everyone that if you ask the audience, right, to raise their hand, have you ever fr get frustrated when you're stuck in the traffic in an in a urban environment? Have you ever encountered a situation that you went to, you want to go to a, situ uh, a destination, but then you figure that you were stuck in the taxi or the Uber or, or buses and, wait, uh, and waited that you could have already walked over or biked over. I think everyone had that moment, right? That frustration started to build up. And uh, when we were, you know, love the story there that we were running late uh, for between the meetings in New York, actually. Uh, the, you know, the meeting was scheduled really tight. We saw that we had enough time and there was bad traffic, right? And then we went to the, the uh, system called the city bike. Then what I realized, you set up the account, you get a bike, taking me 15 to 20 minutes. And then when I go to the first station, there's no bike. And then we had to dash to the second station. We eventually find a bike. We all spend it 15, 20 minutes, get a bike and bike to the other uh, place near, not quite, but near to our destination. And the dock was full. We cannot return a bike. So we were late to the meeting. We spent a lot of time uh, setting up the account, and then we had to leave the bike out of the dock, and the next day we were fined $49 because we didn't return to the dock, which is, was not my problem, right? The, and, and combine that with the passion of like, you know, environmental protection, which we all agree that urbanization is uh, faster and faster, city gets more crowded, which we should also all agree that uh, uh, pollution in the city is much worse than before, but there's no solution, right? Adding more highways or that, it just doesn't help. So we looked at bikes as a way to, to, uh, to solve all the problems. And when we look at the industry, why we had got to ask ourselves a few questions and that's our, you know, roughly about six to eight months of dedicated research was on. Number one, does that in the long term help? consumers, cities, communities, when, you know, real estate in the city, in the, namely shared real estate like public roads and all that stuff, it's getting more crowded and more, more scarce? The answer is yes. Do users adopt this kind of form of transportation? Does it save their money? Uh, you know, does this save them time? Do we have any validations? So we look around and, you know, cities like Amsterdam or Copenhagen, that 50% of the traffic already are on non-cars. And that's a strong validation that it could be done, right? You know, some will ask, oh, well, you know, in the USD or in some other cities, it's cold, it's rains and all that stuff. And look at Amsterdam, look at Copenhagen. I don't think New York is any colder than that. And then we look at a more well-established bike system. For example, one of them was the Barone's bike uh, in London the adoption rate and the utilization actually is, was quite high. Then we further look at a city bike, you know, with all the limitations or that, do people use it? And what do we find out is, uh, it actually was highly leveraged and used during the summertime, not as much in the winter, but the problem was that is in, in conclusion, all the system today was incomprehend. 
in order to to uh, to provide a reliable service to the users. But users do love it. Users do use it. And the last question we have to answer is why all the systems are not addressing this kind of a, a challenge in the past. Any limitations? Any drawbacks? Does the business model work in order to be a sustainable? business to provide a long-term value, right? The business model has to work. So that all come back together to us and we're trying to answer those questions and the picture becomes more clear and clear. First is the first principle of a transportation service is it needs to be comprehensive in order to, for the user to use. It cannot just only be uh, available, but it has to be readily anytime, anywhere user needed. Second, it has to be economically cheap enough for user to use it as a, a daily method, not just occasionally uh, used as a leisure ride. And the third thing is the whole system needs to be so easy to use and very easy to adopt instead of spending 15, 20 minutes when you're in a rush and trying to figure it out. So all these things come together. I think the, you know, we have a good way to address the, the challenge in terms of urban mobility. And as a reminder, the urban mobility, uh, majority of the trips are short. More than 40%, depends on the city, 40, 50% of the trips are less than two miles. So if you apply that into the current solutions, right, waiting for a bus to ride for a mile or two, on average, take you 10, 15 minutes of wait and doesn't take you to destination. Waiting for the for uh for you know taxi uber roughly take maybe five to ten minutes and that adds up in terms of the most valuable thing to all of us is time it just doesn't worth it and in terms of the cost uber taxi and everything is just out of the reach for i i don't have a figure but majority of the people on a daily basis right occasionally of course we all use it but on a daily basis it's economically not enough to be at a, a daily use uh, then the last question we got to answer is, you know, why it didn't work in the past? And what we found out are, one, the product and the hardware are outdated. They were created a decade or even longer ago. At the time, GPS was astoundingly expensive, right? The, uh, the data connection was very expensive. They were all created by, based on docs, which limited the availability of the service and also limit the uh, the utility utility of it, it doesn't get you to where you want to go, right? So that's one thing. And the second thing it was the way it was sponsored in the past or the business model was based on um, city grants or the federal grants, which limits the, again, the availability and also limits the, uh, the innovations that goes into it. So based on the first principle of like, let's go back on what a user want instead of what's available. The user want a cheap, a cheap alternative, get them there faster, and also is eco economical, you know, friendly. And also one very important aspect I want to point out is it has to take less real estate or space on the ground. And if we compare, you know, the available uh, uh, solutions today, a bike takes roughly about one-tenth of the real estate compared to a car it consumes roughly 180s of energy or there's no pollution related to this. The cost is one third or even lower compared to a car trip. And it does 
need to be you know from A to B directly, which is the docklets that we are uh, you know in sense uh, uh, you know kind of insist on. And in addition to that, the relationship with cities and community is the last question we need to answer. We had too many stories of like, hey, let's just crash into that and then we negotiate you know, terms later or whatnot. We decided not to do it. It's like the, you know, we figured our customers, if you, you would, right, it's not only just the end users who benefit from the services, but also the community and cities and how we can help them reduce traffic and pollution. So we always insisted that we get a license and permit and working with the cities uh, to, uh, to establish the products. So what we did in 2017, that we redesigned entire hardware, redesigned the entire operating system, and we redefined how a private company can work with uh, you know, cities and government to provide a service to the general public. So that's how we got come uh, Lime come to uh, to li to life. Very cool. Uh, so many so many questions. Ironically, I, one of the <laughs> ones I had written down before we uh, jumped on this was about um, the idea of like asking for forgiveness later, and you kind of addressed that a little bit. But we can get back to that in a second. I wanted to ask one quick follow up question here. You guys had a few. I don't want to say a few iterations, but you you guys were once called Lime Bike, and now it's mostly Lime, right? Because there's not as as many bikes. Maybe I feel like you were no, known for different things at different points, and it seemed like when the scooters were introduced, that's kind of when at least you guys took off, at least in the public psyche. Um, so can you maybe uh, elaborate on maybe just that small part of your guys' launch, how you went from bikes to scooters and and more? Yeah, totally. So when uh, again that you know. Back to the story that <clears throat> when we launched the company, well, when we started the company, we already had a roadmap. Uh, you know, uh, if you ever came across our like early, you know, company presentations or pitch deck, that before we raised Series A, that the bikes, e-bikes, and all that stuff is already in the roadmap. And again, that I think transportation is not about just a product; it's a service. The service has one goal and one goal only: is to get a user from A to B instead of say, hey, you have to use this method versus the other method. So anything that serves urban mobility was in our roadmap. And it has the uh, shorter distance, which is the pedal bike, and then e-bike, which is a longer distance, and, uh, and then you know, all kinds of form of transportation. But we're iterating, we're testing, we're experimenting, of course. I think the, you know, is scooter the final form for the urban transportation? I don't believe so. I think it will further evolve over time. And I, I do believe that uh, there will be not only one product, but rather a service platform to provide all of them. So that's how we get started. And we started with the company with the brand actually Lime, not a Lime bike, but the first product we launched was Lime bike. And what we found was a search or discovery issue. When we launched with only Lime, you search in the app store, what you found is like lime recipes, cocktails, and <laughs> all that stuff. And that make the user really difficult, right? You're standing on the sidewalk, you look at a bike, you were trying to unlock it, and it says lime on it. So if you search at a time, say lime, then you find you will be frustrated, you know, finding all the non-related, uh, irrelevant stuff. And that's why we started with lime bike, and then converted uh, in, back into Lime when we launched the third product. Uh, but the vision and uh, you know, our plan never changed. I, I think the goal, the vision, the mission never changed. 
it's interesting. It, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Kim. No, 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 no. I was just going to say uh, you're talking about you know in the public consciousness, and I remember being in Berlin. I can't remember what year it was for the ITB exhibition, which is the big trade show every March, and didn't notice anything then. And then I was in Berlin about three or four months later for a weekend with some friends. And I don't know if it was the weather or you just launched, but they were everywhere. I mean, honestly, you couldn't walk down a street in Berlin without <laughs> seeing someone whizzing around on the scooters. I mean, it was, it was really interesting to go. It was just a three or four month period. And it was, everyone was saying, have you got the lie map? Have you, have you tried the scooters yet? And we all had to go, obviously. But anyway, that's a, as an aside. I, I'm interested because, um, you know, I wonder how you went about your kind of demographic analysis and how did you try and understand who was going to actually be a user because I would you know I don't live in London but I, I lived in London for 20 years and I used to ride a, my push bike or get the, the the subway or the underground and I would use a line bike if you know if I wanted to because I you know I'm fairly fit I, I like riding you know I like uh, cycling my bike and stuff like that so how did you but that's not for everybody not every you know everyone wants to ride in the rain in their kind of work clothes or or whatever so how did you go about trying to estimate what your kind of audience size was likely to be yeah uh i think that's a really great question so uh first of all you know let, let me add a little bit of color to to the exploration right we we have a lime lab and we have all kinds of transportation things in there the you know one wheelers the two wheelers the wheels that you mount on your shoes and the tricycles the <clears throat> the uh you know all kinds of crazy things that you could imagine and we test all of them and what we concluded number one thing for uh for the uh, for a, a a good product is safety the safety is not only the real safety that it, you know posed to the users, but also sense of safety, feeling in control, feeling secured, and feeling comfortable using it even occasionally. I think the uh, you know the biking population, for example, in the U.S., there are roughly about one percent uh, of people, including myself, right, bike to work, bike to groceries, all that stuff, or the ninety-nine percent that they are relatively new to this. Many of them are are using it as sports in parks and on trails, but not in a city uh, urban environment. So when we gradually launch in different products, uh, we actually launch uh, the bikes in roughly July in 2017 and e-bikes in, in September. So roughly every six months, we launch a new product. And when we launch the scooters, what happens is given the low central gravity and given the no requirements of physical activities, that becomes instant popular. And there's also a little bit hint of being cool, right? The, uh, you know, bike kind of is a little bit old school. This is the cool thing and all that. And that's where we find out. So we didn't start to say we are going to design it for, you know, younger generations or, or more mature generations or not. But we actually started more fundamentally is what it takes for urban mo mobility in a small form factor becomes popular. I think the sense of safety, easy access, and also less requirements on the physical stress are, are the important things just just a, just a quick follow-up on that if i may brad i mean I, I as a regular cyclist in london when i used to commute there when i lived there 
you know, people would say to me, how do you get to work? And I'd say, oh, I ride my bike. And they go, you're absolutely insane. I'd never ride a bike in London. It's absolutely crazy. The drivers are crazy. You've got the tourists walking out in the middle of the street all the time, all this kind of stuff. So was there a bit of educating as part of your kind of initial marketing to say, that's right. Oh, actually, it's quite safe. You know, it's, it's you know, because it, people always say it's not about you, the rider, it's everybody else. So, you know, how, do, how did you convince people that it was actually a safe mode of transport if they hadn't used a bike or a scooter before? Yeah, I, it's the, uh, that's one of the biggest things that the uh, Lime wanted to accomplish. Yeah. Uh, it's actually not just provide a product service, but generate this movement. The movement of on two, you know, really key two key things. Uh, one key thing is what exactly you ask is how we not just promoting safe, but also educate the public. And the public means the writers and non-writers, right? They are all together and what we're seeing to improve it. So when we look at back on some of the histories and some of the data. Number one thing is the bike incidence rate is actually quite low. And given the, the, uh, the speed, given the mass, um, you know, mass in terms of the weight of the vehicle, even there was an accident, the, uh, it's not as severe. The most of the accident happens is car to cars when you have a 4,000 pound vehicle crash into another vehicle or another person or not is the most devastating state. But as bikers, I think everyone, you know, when we learn it, we all fall, right? You got a bruise, bruise or not, but it's actually quite safe. Uh, the data has been validated by, you know, many of the DOT, or DOT means Department of Transportation, many of the research institutions. Second thing, when we look at like, you know, penetration rate matters a ton. The lowest incident rate, uh, in terms of traffic or bike incidents is in uh, Copenhagen and Amsterdam. And that part, if you look at it, right, they don't even wear helmets. Uh, not, not against it. I still promote, uh, you know, promote and heavily, uh, you know, wanted to incentivize users to, to wear helmets. But I think that explains something. And the most incident happens is when there's not enough critical mass, the car drivers are not paying enough attention to it. And that's one of the biggest things. And there is a research by, I believe, what was done by Oxford. Uh, and what they found a coloration, the highest coloration of incidents and regulation is actually helmet law. Anywhere requires helmet as a law, discourage people riding on the road. And in turn, discourage the city to build more infrastructure. And then in turn, let the drivers to pay less attention to it. Right. As biker, you probably also heard a term is called, uh, I think it's called a uh, Copenhagen door open. <laughs> so you open the door now with your, you know, left hand, what we were driving on the, uh, with the driver's seat on the left, right? You open yep. the door handle with your right hand and naturally that you will turn and look behind you, behind you. before yeah. you open the door, right? <laughs> so that never gets popular in other cities. Guess why? because people doesn't need to pay as much attention if there's no critical mass. So I think that a few things is educated users that by statistic, what is the incident rate and how severe they are. Number yeah. two is promote what is the safe practice, which we spend a lot of time on and a lot of energy and resource. And we give even give hundreds of thousands of helmets for, for free. Uh, and we create uh, first right campaigns all over the place, right? You know, Germany, London, all over the place. The last thing is to provide the data to the city and help and 
help them to build the infrastructure. You know, some of the examples are after we launch Seattle, you know, uh, Oregon, Portland, and even uh, Paris that started building more bike lane, protected bike lane. That's the number one measurement to promote safe rides in the city and it benefits everyone. Uh, just uh, last one from me. I mean, this is more of a um, a practical question about the mechanics of the business, really. I mean, it's a great idea. You will have come up with the idea and you've thought about the hardware and the software and everything that's needed. To go from the idea to having, as you said, you don't want people to have a poor experience of not being able to find one of your bikes anywhere. How did you go through the process of figuring out how many bikes you needed to produce in the first city so that you, you got a sense of some kind of critical mass that people were able to find a bike as and when they needed one. Yeah. Uh, I think the, you know, what we've done are really in twofold, uh, twofold. The first thing is we will study the city first and we'll come up with a proposal. And this actually has been uh, now we're leading uh, the trend and it becomes a more industry standard in a way, right? Let's just say, for example, we are in discussion with London. So we will go to London and say, here, why don't we, you know, if you're uncomfortable to launch a, a citywide, let's launch a, a district, let's start your borough. And, and for that part, it says micromobility is all covering, we're hyper-local business, right? We're covering a mile, two mile of radius. It doesn't need to be entirely on London. We can start with a borough or two, and then we look at like how many streets on it, how many street corners. Yeah, this is very interesting. The corner matters a ton in terms of like the routing, in terms of local businesses, communities, and in terms of potential risk points yeah, for, you know, for incidents or not, right? And population, you know, movement of people, and then we'll submit a proposal to the city. So here's my our proposal, here's the data, here's the stats, here's what we learned from other cities. In a comparable city, we tested, and this is how many you probably needed. But you know, if we are not going to launch a city with 20 bikes, that's more for the show, not really for the people, for the real use. We're not going, however, to launch a city with 200,000 bikes. That's probably too much to begin with. And the, the adoption curve, there is always adoption curve, Right, we started with the approximate right amount to start with, enough density for the user to uh, use it when they need it, but also you know, taking into account how we can manage it, how we can service it, how we can make sure they're safe, and how we fit in the adoption curve. And the second thing we do, this is the beauty of uh, being dockless, service provider, then the data will tell us how many pickups here, how many missing demands here, how many bikes has been, or scooters has been sitting there for 24 hours without use, and there's no demand. And that data will then help us to optimize our, you know, algorithm and where we deploy, how many we deploy, any, any bike or scooters are not be used and we should move out of that place. And, you know, that will give us really the, the perfect number and the perfect method to determine not only how many we need them, but where we need them and what time. And this is one of the secret sauce that uh, Lime has spent, you know, a lot of resource to develop. Yeah, it's fascinating. David? Yeah, Brad. Uh, so, you said something uh, a few minutes ago about uh, you wanted to start a movement. And I thought that was actually really interesting because I'll be the first to admit when I first saw some of the, um, the scooters around, I 
I didn't, my first thought wasn't that they were cool. It was like, oh, that's kind of dorky a little bit, I'll be honest. And I think the reason is because Razor, like they look and remind people of Razor scooters that we had growing up, right, when we were little. And um, and I, I think though that like, I've, I use them all the time. I live in New York City, so not when I'm here, but uh, I live part-time in DC and they're all around DC. And, I, um, and it, they're obviously so convenient. And I feel like you did have to change hearts and minds. And I, and I, I wonder how much of it was the, you know, how much of it was just mind, like people adopting a new way of doing things and how much of it was the business model? Because I remember I lived in SF for seven years and there was Scoot and Scoot never really took off. And I think they kind of sold in a fire sale, if I'm not mistaken, to Bird. Um, and they were obviously weren't clearly the model, but they were actually were like maybe potentially the coolest scooters or more like Vespas, right? Um, but they, they just didn't seem to nail the business model, right? What was, how, how did you balance getting the right product with the right level of cool factor to start a movement like that. And how do you think about that? Yeah, it's the, uh, you know, we study uh, as part of the, the, uh, the research, as I mentioned, where we studied city, you know, city bikes, foreign bikes and the school and many other uh, companies at the time uh, to figure why they got some, you know, uh, you know, success and why they're not taking off at the time. I think for a form factor, like Scoot, uh, it's just a little bit too intimidating. Uh, it's big, you, you sit really high, your central gravity is high, uh, and also it, more, it looks more like a motorcycle, which is associated with high speed, associated with uh, incident rates. I, I actually, I tried it, you know, I actually think it's quite safe, but uh, I think the adoption will be relatively low uh, in terms of like the uh, user, again, back to what I mentioned, right? The sense of being safe is not there. And the second part is the given they were trying to do is more in a way station-based. They're kind of like, you know, uh, not really station-based, but at the end of the day, you're looking at big vehicles, you need to find real estate, so you end up there in corals instead of like, you know, being convenient. So I think that take away some of the utility, right? There's the emotional part of it, there's the utility part of it. Uh, when we were trying to, you know, think about the products, right? We, we did start from two extreme ends. One extreme end is the old school commuter bike. <laughs> and we have a bunch of them. We were uh, one of the largest operator in the world uh, in terms of that, but adding, adding the GPS trackings, adding, you know, extra safeties or that. And then the extremely, let's just say cool, fact you know with a lot of cool factor kind of product and, and trying to find where that middle is so electric scooter it's actually relatively new i'm not uh, not sure uh, you guys know the history of it it only gets popular not long ago the scooter was by itself as a category was created less than 20 years ago and then the electric scooter really gets some traction no, no more than like eight years ago, or even five. That before that, it was a really, really niche market. I would guess that we didn't do have the scientific data, but I would guess ninety percent of our users, or if not more, never tried an electric scooter before. Before life, it's their first try. It's their really the first time that they adopted, and it, it does feel a bit dorky. It does feels like, oh, that's the, you know, whatever kid down the, down the block, right? That kind of thing. But today you're seeing the users are from like, you know, 80 years old to 80 years old. The highest uh, age I know of was 92, was on our scooter. 
So I think that's really the movement coming. I think the movement comes in into first is recognize, agree upon the value, the value of reduced traffic and pollution and, and feeling that I'm contributing to it, right? And then the second part is that it becomes a new trend that this is actually something cool. You know, examples that of that happens in the past a lot, right? We used to use plastic bag into shopping, so all that stuff. And then, you know, because of the consciousness of environmental protection, we're using paper bags and all that. And that seems like a small shift, but in the beginning, people was, was whining about, wow, this thing leaked, this thing got, you know, soaking water, it breaks, I, I just cannot use it, it looks like so cheap. But now it's a, a normal thing. So I think our goal is to make urban transportation, you know, on a shared platform, actually not cool. Actually, it's, you see it as a normal part of your life. And that's how it go. But they started with the movement of people recognizing it, agree with the values and, and feeling contribute to it. And that's the beginning part. So I think the journey uh, of like re, reinvent urbanization, uh, the, uh, the urban mobility is just at the beginning. I love that. It's, uh, you guys, your goal was basically to commoditize and normalize, not to maybe set it up as something cool. And I actually think that's a, a really uh, good distinction. Um, if, if uh, you know, to the kind of way of thinking about it, I, I wanted to ask you. So, you know, what's interesting is I, I think the first way uh, bike share and scooter share maybe burst into the public psyche was in China, right? Mobike and all these other uh, guys that uh, I don't actually know the full state of many of them, but I know a lot of them are bankrupt, if I'm not mistaken. And I know there are literally called, called bike graveyards of, of uh, orange and yellow bikes piled up in, in, in different cities in China. And um, you know, so actually, I think this is kind of like a two-part question here in that, you know, one, part of the reason that was the case is that there weren't a lot of com competitive moats or barriers for those those companies in particular, uh, you know, at least not enough to stop, you know, Alibaba and Tencent going at each other with a bike proxy war. Um, but, you know, the that's a part of a wider question of why did you choose America? Because I remember I studied abroad in, in France, uh, in, in Paris uh, in 2008, I think, uh, 2007, and they already had Vilib. They, they had a culture of bike sharing, you know, in 2007. And I, I feel like something a trend that we are, we see a lot in this podcast, you know, we asked the blah, blah car founder this as well as like, you know, why didn't, you know, carpooling work in America? And he said, oh, that's America specific thing. And it's, it's, you know, sometimes, you know, the behavioral patterns really matter in a country. So I, I actually found it a little surprising that you guys, especially with your Chinese background and the population of bikes in China that you chose America. So I think there's got to be some insights there. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, the great question. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, uh, let me answer it in two parts as well, right? The, the first part, in terms of the business models or that, and let's, I, again, I, you know, during our research, I look back to the histories and, and if we sort of focus on two things. Do users use it, right? If users don't want it, no one's going to shovel the, you know, a new product or service down their throat. Uh, and the second part is, that, is there a business model to be built to provide a service and also create a sustainable business? And, why it's not working in the past. So the first bike share, to be clear, the first dockless bike share, not even docked, was created in 1942 in, in, uh, in Amsterdam. It's called a white bike. If you search on, on, online and, and look for white bike, it's still there. And it started with the, exactly the same idea, with exactly the same vision, to 
using bikes, shared bikes, and and devices like this to you know to ease the urban uh, urban uh, transportation, and the big starting with the the idea, however, at the time was based on is order based. So a bunch of people, you know, donate their bikes, they're painted all white, entirely white, so very distinguished. And they put on the street, everyone can borrow it. When you use it, you put it back on the street. Brilliant idea. And that vision has never changed. It didn't work. And the reason being, uh, I think the, uh, you know, there are many game theories goes into that. And the reason being, uh, if there's not enough identity or 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 security kind of uh, you know measurements guess where the bikes end up with they're all gone like literally in a relatively short time so then what happens is that then it was created in uh in the form of dock based bike shares and that's all over the places and mostly funded by the government since everyone see the use of it see the benefit of it technology at the time however was incomprehend Without a GPS, without data link, right? They, they relies on the on the real estate uh, to create, you know, docks, and they're super expensive. Um, if the audience is interested, you can look into how much they cost. It's an astonishing number, right? I, I can literally tell you that you know, to create a, a station and based bikes, the bike plus the service contract in five years will not worth cost more than my car. Uh, <laughs> that's how much it costs, and it doesn't make sense anymore. So then move forward, I think the bike share in China, you know, validated a few things. So the number one thing they validated is user love it. Regardless, let's put the business, you know, aside, user loved it. They use it for convenience, they use it for saving time, they use it for reduced pollutions or not, right? And also they're, they're much less expensive than other alternatives. The second thing they validated is, you know, in terms of the operating model, that uh, with the current technology, it could be done. With GPS, with data behind it, with the algorithm that dynamically, you know, uh, balancing, rebalancing, or even fixing the, uh, uh, the bikes or the, uh, or the vehicles, it could be done. What they failed to do, and this is one of the reasons uh, that the uh, leads us to believe that US and Europe are better market is the disconnection between the cost of the vehicle itself and the user's willingness to pay. So per trip, the bike share in China on average fetch roughly about 50 cents RMB and that translates into roughly about seven cents US dollars. In the U.S., I think a dollar trip for our bike share is pretty much a no-brainer, right? That the, this is probably the cheapest ever transportation you ever had uh, in terms of like getting around on, on a bike. And scooter costs a little bit more, but still, it's the best alternative. Roughly about the same uh, price or a little bit higher than a bus without a weight, without, you know, the walk at the beginning or at the end. So in terms of the, uh, the value, those are the cheapest way. But guess what $2 means compared to seven cents per trip? You're looking at, you know, 30X in terms of revenue. But guess how much our bikes or scooters cost compared to their bikes? They're universal. A bike you're buying from the factories, you know, for the China market or for the US market, they're roughly the same. We, it's more expensive, I can tell you that, since we have higher standard in terms of like, 
you know, uh, environmental protect, uh, friendly paint, you know, better, sec better uh, safety devices, more sturdy, bigger frames for, for the body builds here. But at the end of the day, you're not looking at a 30X of cost. So that's one of the reasons we did it. And the second part is China has been well served in that regard. I'm not just saying the bike share. In terms of the urban transportation, Asia in general has more robust systems compared to US and Europe. How many bus lines are running in Beijing? Uh, the time when, when I had my startup over there, that was like 17 years ago, right? They have 200 bus lines. They have seven major you know, subways and then supplement with the small buses that's shared and you know, the uh, Tok Tok, right? <laughs> the Tok Tok uh, little cars running around, taking around for two RMBs and all kinds of things. Well, as in the US in particular, this market is very well underserved. And that's one of the reasons that uh, we see the opportunity, but also see that as a mission for us to, uh, you know, really fill the gap. I love that. It's funny, I talked about this years ago when we started Mozio, uh, talking about the multimodal future. For the longest time in America, you had taxis and uh, subway, and that's it. And there was nothing yep. kind of in between and how basically you're seeing like a slicing and dicing of every single price point usage case now. And, and I think that's a great point that like a lot of Asian countries had multiple tiers existing already in between in a way that in America we didn't. Um, uh, like you're, 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 you're equipped there about building for a bigger frame. Uh, yes, Americans are fatter than, <laughs> than people in Asia. Um, so uh, yeah, I can, I can imagine that there's a lot of interesting cultural changes. So um, well, I had one last more before I turn it back over to Kevin, which is um, we, you know, I feel like I watched the rise in Uber and Lyft in San Francisco and then the necessary clampdown afterwards. And I think there was, they had an attitude and I alluded to this earlier of ask for forgiveness, not permission. And, uh, you know, flouting a lot of uh, local uh, city and state laws. And I think you could say by a lot of standards, they got away with it. Now, obviously in California, there's a, you know, a bill that potentially could screw them. Um, and so you might, your strategy might be vindicated, right? Um, I, I think a lot of people felt who were industry observers uh, that, the scooter industry paid the price for their recklessness that you guys ended up with extra regulations, uh, extra RFPs and more. Uh, that was basically a reaction to, we let Uber and Lyft run wild. We're not gonna do that again with these scooters everywhere. Um, I'm curious how much of your strategy to engage with cities was based on just that new reality uh, versus do you, did you actually think that um, what Uber and Lyft did wasn't a smart idea in the first place? Yeah, I the there might be nuances, uh, you know, for different segments or that. And for us, that is, it was very clear ever since the day one that we we determined that we're going to work with city, not uh, using the, uh, you know, the uh, the old strategy. And and I'll explain a little bit better that the thinking process, uh, you know, behind it. And the second thing, we were begging for regulations. Again, I think the, the main reason, I would say three, right? First, for, uh, for you know, the Uber uh, Lyft versus like the uh, micro mobility is entirely different. since so they have very strong incumbents, uh, you know, like taxi unions or whatnot, right? The incumbents would not allow any regulation would pass, right? They were start up at the time, they don't have millions or hundreds of millions in revenue and tens of millions in lobby cost, right? That's my guess, right? But I, I think that's one of the thinking process in there. Well, as for us, we're, who are we up against? There's, there's no such a system that is powerful or has the, 
you know, that strong incentive. No scooter lobby, to, <laughs> big scooter. <laughs> yeah, blocking <laughs> us. Well, right. And then the, uh, I think that's one of the key, key differences in terms of just a uh, business logic that we don't go against anyone. We're not up against like taxi unions as Uber Lyft did. We're not up against like hotel chains as Airbnb did. We are providing a service. But the most important thing, however, for us is as uh, I briefly mentioned in a, uh, 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 you know, earlier, is we've determined that our customers is not only just users. We have three groups of customers. We have the users that are our riders. And then we have the communities we're serving. We are in their community, on their blogs, on the street. So we pay a lot of attention to the non-riders. How do we make sure they're not, you know, cluttered or block the sidewalks? How do we, we even have a technology called a sidewalk detection, right? Sidewalk riding detection, all that stuff uh, to protect and help the community. And, and the, the other one is the city. Again, back to the vision and also, you know, what do we want to achieve? We want to achieve our two things, right? The movement, everyone participate. Even they don't ride, they can be part of the movement and supporting it, supporting all the change. And city is critical in there. And the second thing is to reinvent urban, uh, urban mobility. And that we cannot achieve it by ourselves, to be clear. Infrastructure is with the cities, how they plan the bike lanes, do they have that is protected or not, right? And many things that goes with it. So they're our customer. You don't piss off your customer, go against them. You just never do that. And we see them as a customer, even they're not paying us revenues or that. We even, uh, their cities come to us and willing to give us grants and subsidizes to create a program. And we said, look, you know, here's, here's the deal. We will not take the money. Instead, we'll give you the data. You can use it to build more bike lanes. Protected bike lanes, education, you know, campaigns will work with you on those things. And that's the vision. So I think the fundamentally business logic, we, we don't have to, we don't need to, we don't want to do it. But also vision-wise, city are our customers our partners, <laughs> and we cannot achieve what we wanted to achieve without their help. Yeah, so, it's funny. Oh, sorry. sorry, go ahead, Dave. Well, just one comment, and then I'll, I'll turn it over to Kevin. Actually, just it's funny that I, I posted something on LinkedIn like four or five weeks ago when um, Uber bought a company called AutoCab or iGo, and it was kind of a funny full circle because uh, you know I've been in the industry for nine years, and all for all nine years up until about six weeks ago, Uber was talking about how they didn't want to work with anyone else, uh, not working with anyone else at all. It was going to do it all by themselves, and uh, and I remember thinking like you know your twenty thirty billion dollars is a pittance in the trillion dollar transportation industry. You need you're going to need to work to, with everyone else, and um, I just made a joke that they went through like the five or six stages of you know transportation startup grief, which is thinking we're going to take over the world and ending with okay, fine, we're more of a platform and we'll, we'll work with other people now <laughs> and like it seems like you guys started at phase six so congratulations on skipping through all the other arrogance <laughs> I, I just uh, just to kind of finish us off then i mean I, I i don't want to add a kind of a, a negative tone to all this because it's been a really um almost kind of uplifting conversation because it's a very positive kind of business it's about sustainability and urban mobility and mobilizing communities and things but I, I i'm interested in a couple of things and that's how did you go about tackling things like theft of the bikes and vandalism and more at a fundamental business level i mean 
I, maybe the report I've been reading earlier is wrong, but you know they were talking about big losses that you made last year. I mean, how do how have you approached kind of the sustainability of your own business as you kind of as you've got through the last certainly 2019 when you became the CEO and this year? I mean, I think we can all discount any kind of business logic when it comes to 2020. But just talk us through the kind of the, the your kind of own sustainable business model. Yeah, totally. I think that's a actually very important, uh, you know, topic, and I'd love to share our a little bit of our journey with, uh, you know, with the industry. I think, you know, first and foremost, right? Let me just make it very clear: the I, in order to create a world-changing product or service, we have to have a sustainable business. Otherwise, it will not it will not last. It will not achieve our vision and goals. So that has been the uh, the focus uh, for the company. But first, go back to the first one though. There are a lot of stories to share, uh, in terms of like the theft and all that stuff. The first of all, the data shows uh, we have already operated, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of vehicles around the globe over. Mm-hmm. In over like a hundred, you know, hundreds different cities uh, on actually five out of the seven continents. So that part, that the uh, the data actually shows very clearly the theft is very low, probably less than a percent. That's the number one thing I wanted to share. The second thing is, you know, how initially we always have a little bit higher, but less theft, more a uh, little bit more vandalism. I think the vandalism came into two ways. Well, one is trying to you know steal the vehicles or bikes, and the second part is again the, you know back to the movement. Uh, some people believe in that, some people don't. Right, they will do crazy things or whatnot. The technology helps us a ton. Since every one of them are GPS tracked and we have yeah. sensors and it will trigger the alarm and then we can take actions on it. And we know exactly where they are. Even you steal it, we literally saw vehicles was running on the freeway like 60 miles an hour, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know what happens. And then all we do is just follow that trace and go stare, knock on the door, say, hey, can you return our vehicles? And so what vehicle? Well, here's the GPS. Here's exactly the location in your backyard, right? And then the second thing we'll tell them, which is very critical uh, as well, because our vehicles are all specifically designed for a urban shared application. And what means is it's not pleasant to use as a personal use, but the most important thing is there's no resale value. You can't yeah. use it. You use it on the street, people will know what it is, and it's tracked by GPS. Without a charging infrastructure, they cannot recharge it. And the most important, if they take to you know, black markets or that, nobody's gonna buy it. Right. And what, we, what happened, I'll share it with you, a really fun story that initially we had a warehouse. Uh, I, I won't you know, name the city or whatnot. It, it doesn't help in this context, right? So we had a warehouse. Our, team are, are getting ready to launch the products and it was in the backyard. So the f- second day when we get there, the bikes are gone, right? They were like, like taken out of the warehouses or that. What happened the third day is the most interesting thing, right? The third day we briefly saw some up on the Craigslist and immediately got deleted probably by, by, the, by the owners. And the third day they were thrown back to our warehouse over the fence. Because they figured out they cannot sell it, and it's like evidence of crime in their backyard. And that's what happens is they will throw back over the fence into, back into our warehouses. But I think the, this thing, however, what I want to emphasize is very small. Percentage-wise, it's very small, and, and it's very manageable. But I think the most important thing, again, is that we, if it becomes a more 
normal part of our life if we all believe that's creating value not just for the writers but for everyone of us then you know we will uh, endorse it we will help to protect it we have community members actually patrol the street for us because they believe it's helping them to reduce traffic in that community and believe this is the cheapest alternative and that the uh, you know for them to get around since they've been waiting for the bus line to extend or the subway line over there for over a decade and nothing happened right and there's no way for them to get around and they see this as a gift so put that aside uh, to so back at the second question there are distinguished characteristic of what do we do? And the most two important thing, number one is innovation. We've been iterating, improving and all that. And it's a very capital heavy in terms of like, yeah. you know, doing iteration, doing the development and all that. And we're proud of the speed we, we achieved. In general, the hardware, if you ever encounter, the development cycle is somewhere between two to three years or two to five years. Well, as we be iterating uh, our products and vehicles that on a quarterly basis. So that does generate uh, quite a bit, uh, let's just say waste or necessary capital expenditure in the, in the, uh, in the beginning part. When it's stabilized, however, then we, capital, then we really benefit from you know, the innovation we have. The second part is we are a, still a startup. You know, as a reminder, we're less than four years old. We're, you know, three years old uh, company. Uh, we're learning how to operate, how to design the hardware products, how to operate it, how we optimizing our algorithms and all that, right? The, so all this come together, it was quite capital heavy and, and, uh, and uh, operational heavy for the first few years. But now we already figured most part out. The innovation never stops. We're keeping, uh, you know, keeping at it. As a... Well, of the figure that, you know, some of the data I cannot disclose uh, due to confidentiality, but one thing that I proud to say before coronavirus uh, hits, we were already on the edge to be break even or even profitable, uh, even without a pandemic. So if you think about that, the company has been already on the right track to be a sustainable, profitable business. And that is not on the cost to make it too expensive for the user. I know some business does. We never change our vision. We still keep it the, you know, relatively the most economic uh, viable product and service for the users, but we further improve on the hardware design, increase the, uh, uh, you know, durability of the vehicles. And very importantly is to optimizing and, and reducing our uh, operational cost. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you you took over in uh, May 2019. I mean, you've had one hell of a first 18 months as the CEO, right? I mean, how have you just personally got through it? Last question, just kind of give us a sense about your own kind of kind of personality and management style. I mean, you wouldn't have expected anything of what all the whole industry has had to go through when you took over in May 2019. So how have you kind of personally got through it? You mean the the uh, the COVID nineteen part? Yeah, or? just uh, just all of that. I mean, you like I said, yeah. you wouldn't have taken over in May two thousand and nineteen, knowing that a global pandemic was gonna was going to you know kill lots of people and decimate an entire industry. 
I know, yeah, it's a really sad thing that happens in the world. And we all hope that it never happened, right? <laughs> uh, it's a tough time, for sure. And for me, that uh, I see myself more as a builder and also a, you know, I'm really good at strategy and products and all that, right? That's where I see, uh, I see myself. Mm-hmm. I'm, if Lime, depends on how you count it, it's fifth or sixth startup for me. Uh, so I know my strengths, I know my weakness, uh, I know what I'm passionate about, right? I'm all, all passionate about products, I'm all passionate about like the strategy figure things out. So we start a company without me being the CEO, rather, uh, you know, Toby was the CEO. And we're good partners, he, he has been in my team for uh, roughly about four years before we started the, the venture together. And that's my strength is not to run the daily operations, but rather focus on the products and focus on the strategy for the company. We, I started as a chairman for, uh, for Lime and, and focus my all, whole energy on the product and service, uh, sorry, on the products and also on figuring out the, the core strategy and make sure that it were true to our vision and to the values. Mm-hmm. And in 2018, the company grew quite fast and that's a little bit uh you know uh starting 2019 we already grow from a startup in less than two years right that generating we're probably one of the fast ever revenue generating company in the world uh in terms of uh, you know time to launch in market and we we probably one of the fast ever global company you know from uh, a small market in the U.S. to over 100 markets, 30 countries in less than a year and a half. So that puts a lot of pressure into the company management, you know, organizational-wise, culture-wise, hirings and political uh, things, everything together. And then Toby and I decided, the uh, you know, it's better for me to step in while we look for another, you know, CEO that are are better for a different stage of the company. And that's why I stepped in. So I've been active 120% online. So it's nothing new to me rather than a title change. (laughs) I did took on some of the responsibilities that uh, Toby was focusing on. Since he is great in terms of like, you know, sensing the consumers and uh, brandings as well as innovation. So he was repositioned to focus on what he's good at and well as that I step in to sort out the, the company for roughly, for the time, roughly about a year. And coronavirus gave us a big hit and even bigger since we made a decision to shut down like 90 plus percent of the market. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know we will lose a lot of ton of revenue. We know that uh, it will be a tougher restart uh, for us if we did that. But we also know as a servant to the cities, to our people, we cannot, you know, be the one that... Uh, help transmit the virus before we figure out a solution. Yeah. So we paused the whole thing uh, for three, four months. And then two things happened, uh, bring us back to the market. One is more and more city come back to us and say, hey, we really need you. You are essential service for us. And think about, you know, we're, you, you guys are the, the safest way to get around compared to buses, subways, or any confined transportation that you sit with another one in in a confined you know uh, environment including taxi or not right and and we then started to provide essential services to to uh, healthcare providers and uh, to first responders uh, for free 
So that's for our first return to that. And the second part really triggers our full return is how we figured uh, we can help to fight that. In addition to that, we've been the safe way to uh, go around, but also is the how we sanitize the vehicles, how we hand in, you know, little hand sanitizers to to the handlebar, and that's the only thing you need to worry about, right? And 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 you know, education campaigns or that. So we started back to the market in roughly in May, uh, and then of course we got really hit on the revenue side, and we had to do you know some of the layoffs in order to sustain the business. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, that taking additional fundings as well. Now I handed over the company to uh, Wayne Ting, which was the head of global operation uh, at Lime. He's doing a phenomenal job in terms of running operation, you know, the things I mentioned before, right? Running, scaling the business, running operations, as well as, uh, you know, optimizing our operating, uh, operational cost. And he's, he, he is the, uh, the, you know, the next leader for Lime in terms of running the daily operations. I'm very glad they, uh, this happens. Okay. Now back to my chairman, <laughs> back to the beginning. <laughs> okay, and I, I suspect we could have talked for at least another half an hour or so. There's a bunch of things that uh, I would like to get into, and I'm sure that David would as well, but uh, um, we try not to go over an hour, and we're probably there or thereabouts. So thank you so much, uh, Brad Bell from Lime. We really appreciate the time you spent with us today. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, David. I really appreciate that you guys create uh, this series. I, I think the uh, the travel industry, there's a long way to go. There's so many things we could do, you know, provide better product services. And also, again, I just wanted to uh, kind of make a call here that uh, anything the entrepreneurs do or investors, please also keep the environmental protection in mind. This yeah. is about not just a business or whatnot, revenues and profit, but it's also about how we together to create a better world. Okay, amen to that. I can't beat that. Only to say, uh, again, thanks ever so much uh, for tuning in. If you're a regular listener, you are a subscriber, I'm sure. But if you're not, you can subscribe to How I Got Here on the usual places. That's iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, Alexa, Google Podcasts, all those places. Uh, give us a review and, uh, and tell us how brilliant we are. And indeed, tell us how great this interview was because it was really, really fascinating. So thanks ever so much to Brad again. On behalf of David and I, thank you very much for listening to How I Got Here. And we'll see you next time. For listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.